CloudPod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, Google, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, and Peter. Episode 41, recorded on September 24th, 2019. The CloudPod, now with dynamic parallelism. Hey guys, how's it going tonight? Good. Looking forward to the weekend, though. Yes, the weekend can only get here much slower because it's time for my vacation and so the last week before vacation is always the longest always always yes in honor of the in honor of working all day until the minute we started this podcast at 8 45 um i'm having a founders all day ipi right now oh oh bringing going old school Back, mm-hmm. to, back to the drinks. I, I have mm-hmm. nothing, so that's how I planned for this podcast. Oh, we had the work, um, the work shindig this afternoon, and they had some Sculpin Grapefruit IPA, Ooh. which is you know, what I would have picked anyway, but it's great that they gave it away for free. There you go. <laughs> Very good. Well, we actually have a bunch of general topics tonight, uh, just because there's been some interesting think pieces and some other interesting outside-of-the-cloud world news that's so relevant to us, and so we're gonna we're gonna jump into that before we get into the normal uh, program here of AWS and Azure and uh, Google. So uh, the first one uh, is actually a Google article, but it's more of an uh, opinion piece or news article kind of guidance post. And, and Google does a lot of these right now because I think they're just trying to build market share and mind share in the world, and so they're doing a lot of philosophical uh, type posts, if you will. And so this one's called the CIO's Guide to Cloud Success, Decoupling to Shift Your Business into High Gear. Uh, and they go on to talk about an 80% of success um, is showing up to the cloud. But unfortunately for enterprises migrating to the cloud, that doesn't always occur. And they, they quote a recent uh, McKinley study saying enterprises are falling short of their IT agility expectations by not moving to the cloud. Uh, and they claim this disconnect is occurring due to the way that organizations adopt cloud either by renting pooled resources from cloud vendors or investing in SaaS subscriptions. And this doesn't solve their needs, of course, and it just allows them to adopt things a little faster and a little bit more efficiently. Uh, they can go on to say that cloud services are increasing about intelligence, automation, and velocity, and not just about becoming economies of scale offered by big providers running out their infrastructure. Uh, and they basically go on to talk about this in more depth, and then they pull in Anthos and then do a sales pitch for you on Anthos. Uh, and then they, they basically equate this down to decoupling, uh, in their mind, equals agility, uh, shifts your development into high gear, and decoupling increases your com- uh, but, uh, decoupling does increase your complexity, in some cases, uh, and they're saying it doesn't. Uh, and so basically their end-all argument is Anthos, agility minus the complexity, uh, which is really not what I think this is. But what do you no. guys think? It sounds like a wonderful sales pitch for somebody, but I completely disagree with their four points. <laughs> That's the summary at the end of the thing. I, I think applications shouldn't be entirely uh, unaware of the infrastructure they run on. They should be aware of the constraints of the system. I think teams that are decoupled from each other won't work well together. Uh, development is equal from operations. I mean, I can't believe that Google have been pioneers of DevOps, but they're they're separating the two now. And well, security. They've always, been, they've always had that model, though. They've always had the Dev and SRE team being separate, but with um, with uh, uh, engagement structure that gave both of them pain if they went too slow, and both of them pain if they went too fast, basically. Yeah, I do, I do like the way they, they organize the SRE because they have engineers from development moving in and out of SRE, sharing knowledge, and you sort of take your turn to to train other people and to uh, be responsible for the uptime and things. I, I, I wish more people could do that. It's difficult to get there. Definitely tough to do anything when it takes your system 26 hours to do run, build, and integration testing because it's so big. 
Yeah, I, I, I kind of, I, I kind of feel like these these four points, including the security being decoupled. I, I think it, it's like the the only way you could possibly be successful if you if you consider these four topics is is by using Anthos. So it's really just a cornering people into spending an enormous amount of money on their product. Yeah, but you know, Anthos is is relatively complex. You're talking about buying you know infrastructure to run in your data center that you then run the Anthos software layer on top of, uh, you know, at ten thousand dollars for a hundred vCPU. Uh, you know, there, you have to manage it, you have to care and feed for it, you have to keep it patched. Uh, you know, there's a lot of complexity to that, that, and that complexity ends up being on your infrastructure team, uh, which is kind of the benefit of going to cloud in the first place is trying to get away from that. And so that's actually kind of the interesting part about outposts, and the fact that the hardware isn't your responsibility. Your buying outposts with the hardware and all that kind of included and the support and maintenance is all done by amazon whereas anthos is very much you know bring your own hardware we'll make it work uh but you know you're responsible for maintaining it i'm sure google will be happy to sell you some professional services to, to get it up and running because most of traditional infrastructure teams aren't aren't going to be the people who have the right skills to run anthos yeah it's definitely a different model different skill set and with any new technology you're not going to find a lot of bodies who already know it well, I mean, essentially, since it's not actually short shipping to anybody for reals yet. <laughs> yeah. Day one. Um, day one. I want to hire someone who has 10 years Anthos experience. I love, I love it when I get those requests from customers. It's like, that technology has been out six months. Yeah. Isn't that, isn't that always fun? Especially entry-level positions with five years of experience. That's always great. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, interesting enough, um, as I was going through this article, and uh, I stumbled across um, another blog post by a Tyler Treat, who's a managing partner at uh, Real Kinetic. Um, and he wrote an interesting blog post that I, he had some perspectives that I hadn't considered and I thought we'd share here on the podcast. Um, you know, so his blog post is called What's Going On with GKE and Anthos? Um, and he starts out talking about, you know, when TK took over for Diane Green, you know, a lot of people expressed concern about what this meant for the future of GCP. Uh, you know, vendor lock-in, of course, is already the number one concern for cloud adopters, and Oracle, of course, is notorious for locking customers into expensive uh, contracts, as we all know. Uh, and Google, you know, he goes on to say, has never been a customer-first company. It's always been a technology leader, uh, but it struggles immensely when with enterprise sales and support. Uh, and they also don't dog food in their own technology because they have their own internal systems like Borg and other things that actually they use internally versus using something like GKE. Um, you know, of course, the case of Oracle, uh, you know, customer isn't first either, uh, but it does know how to meet customers where they are and sell in a way that resonates with enterprise. Uh, and Google has approached sales engineering in a way that has failed to resonate with customers by attempting to map its superior technology offerings onto customer problems. And nothing could, of course, be more putting off to people like me, decision makers and IT, uh, <laughs> where a round hole that SE is telling you is going to be fixed with the square peg they're trying to sell you. Um, so that's very interesting. But, you know, it goes on to the speculation that he has about uh, the things that they just announced. So we talked about this, I think, last week on the show, uh, the new binary authorization feature, for example. So the binary authorization feature, which we talked about, is right now in beta. Uh, and until it's G and after it goes GA, uh, it has, gives you six months free to try it out. But then if you want to keep it after that, you need to talk to your sales rep, according to their documentation. And basically starting in March, 20, uh, March 16th, 2020, GKA clusters will need to be part of an Anthos-subscribed organization to enable the binary auth. Uh, and so basically what he kind of goes on to say here is that if they're starting to bundle these really interesting features, and he also you know, pointed out that Cloud Run is already in this model, as well as Istio, that you had their Anthos features, they're not GKE features, they're actually creating a very expensive lock-in scenario to get you into these very high-level services that are very difficult to run top of Kubernetes natively, uh, and that you know this is probably the most Oracle thing they've done to date. 
but on the other hand, they've, they've got these, they're coming up with novel solutions to problems, and if Anthos is the way they can deliver those, if, they, if it's not possible to deliver those on, on GKE, then at, at least they've got a product that, that people can use now. Yeah, but I mean, I can get service mesh, I can get uh, Lambda functions, I can get all these things running on AWS today, and if those technologies move over to, to Outposts, then I, I get the both, both benefits. This is saying that I, I'll even have to listen, license Anthos inside Google's cloud to use these features, which that's a, that's a really interesting take. So, I mean, so if we think about this from a realistic perspective, a cloud provider who's the number three cloud with a very small percentage of the market is in no position to lock in customers with super expensive options when other vendors have cheap alternatives and and are the are leading the pack. So if I had to predict where this was going, I would predict that it's going to land where basically you get Anthos for free in Google's cloud and you pay for it uh, to run in your data center. And if that's the case, GKE is just going to get rebranded to Anthos. Then that's yeah. relatively okay yeah. with that. Right. But that hasn't been said. And so, you know, he does, he does talk about in the last part of the article about um, you know, maybe the best case Google is just muddying the waters uh, with unclear marketing, direction, and strategy. But, you know, is it also something a little bit more sinister there, too? It's, it's definitely an interesting question um, because... You can't, you can't be sinister if you don't have any customers. <laughs> I mean, they do have customers. We talk to them quite often in the night. What, you know, they they tell percent? me that they're, that they're moving of off market? of Google. Yeah, what percent of the market do they have? It's not like they they won the market as a as a monopoly and now they're using monopolistic practices. Um, I it, well, if that's what they're trying to do, then wow, that's a that's really bad leadership because it's not going to go anywhere. You you're going to lock in the tiny little percent you have uh, of the market and uh, and push away all new customers effectively. So, I mean, it works when you're a monopoly, not when you're not. Yeah, but if you keep us, if you keep it there, in the back pocket, and you don't execute the vision until people are locked in, it does make an interesting risk. But uh, yeah, I agree with you. I don't think it's necessarily the case. I just think it's an interesting perspective I hadn't thought of. Uh, maybe a little bit more, uh, you know, aggressive in the approach and more oracle-ish in your nature. And maybe it's just, you know, people thinking TK is more an oracle guy, and this is just a this is just a perfect example of what an oracle thing would do. Maybe that's the case here. And I, and I agree with you. I, I don't know that this is the right strategy for them or it's any strategy for them, but it's definitely an interesting think piece uh, to consider. If anything, it might be a method of limiting um, the uh, uptake of the service in the beginning before they're ready to scale it. Mm, maybe. Now, why do that, though, instead of just having a, a private beta? Or a limited release. It seems seems bizarre, but I just I just cannot get over the fact that you could you can get a, a virtual CPU for like twenty five dollars for a month, but the the software is going to cost you a hundred dollars a month to sit on top of it. It's just the, the the discrepancy between the hardware and the software now is is uh, it's very oracle for sure. I just keep looking back at a couple of the Amazon features that came out. I can't remember which security ones it was, but it's like you know the price decreases of ninety percent happen when you release something that you're just not ready to scale yet and then when you're ready to scale it the price comes down well that, that may be in the case with with something like fargate right where we talked yeah. about you know how expensive fargate was versus running just ecs natively and then they have that massive pay cut that you know or price cut that basically thank you, you. Know, cut it down to you know eight or nine percent more than running on your ec2 and that that's an that's an attractive outsourcing model where you know that's that's not a bad price to pay for not managing ecs nodes um, but yeah you know it's definitely gonna be interesting to see 
where this goes, and, you know, definitely something to keep an eye on, but, you know, at the end of the day, it may be nothing, but it's definitely interesting. For sure. And the software sounds cool. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm excited to see what happens with Anthos. Uh, I think it'll be interesting, and if it does make a lot of the stuff easier, I think that's what Kubernetes desperately needs, and that's why I'm really interested to see what VMware does with um, Project Pacific, because I think they might actually crack the, the enterprise Kubernetes problem in a way that people are not expecting, so we'll see. Hey everyone, Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. All right, well, moving on to other news. Uh, there was a bit of a, a kerfuffle uh, in the open source space with Chef. Um, I don't know how much you guys are aware of this, but uh, basically, uh, Chef was identified as potentially selling, or no, they did sell, uh, software to the uh, Immigration and Customs Enforcement Office, uh, apparently starting as far back as the 2014-2015 timeframe, and then, of course, renewed it last year. Um, one of their former employees, uh, an open source programmer and a well-known DevOps guru, uh, was deeply unhappy when he found out about uh, his software being potentially used uh, in ICE and the separation of children and all those political things we're not going to talk about here. Uh, but you know, he, in response to this, felt from a moral obligation that he needed to pull uh, three of the Ruby gems that he wrote um, at the time when he was at Chef, and they were still in his name. You know, they were attributed to him in, in Ruby gems. They were attributed to him on open source. Um, you know, they definitely looked like things that he had ownership of, and so and Chef was definitely referencing those versions of these pieces of code versus you know a Chef version of the repo or Ruby gem. Uh, and this, of course, resulted in a very large uh, portion of the uh, Chef community having builds break uh, in a really bad way because these three gems are pretty integral to how do you use Chef uh, today in this modern world. Uh, and you know, at the end of the day. Uh, Seth Vargo, who is the, the open source developer, who said that, said, uh, I'm not trying to make a political statement, he said. Uh, As software engineers, we have to abide by some sort of moral compass. When I learned that my code was being used for purposes that I received as evil, I had to act. Uh, and he did apologize for the disruption to you if you were impacted by this. Uh, Chef scrambled to uh, restore the gems and uh, kind of bungled that as well, um, accidentally removing Seth's name from the code, which is really kind of a dirty trick. Um, and then, you know, overall, just really bad missteps uh, in the first part of this, uh, resulting in a formal letter that their CEO, Barry Chris wrote uh, to their employees that got leaked out to the press, basically saying that, you know, their decision to support government is free trade and we don't, you know, we don't really see that as a problem. And that's kind of their stance. And that erupted up the Twitter sphere uh, in big ways. So that's kind of the first part of the story. Any thoughts there before I move on? Yeah, there's good reason to have your own... Uh repos for your uh, for your artifacts like gems <laughs> yeah yeah definitely uh, you know didn't we learn our, our lesson from left padding uh, in the yeah. node.js days <laughs> yeah oh man uh, you know i think i think seth uh, has every right to not continue working on the product on the on sugar and the other uh, gems that he that he wrote i i don't think it's it, it has done any good for the community in general it just makes people doubt open source 
uh, if people can just pull something like this. I mean, who knows what consequences there may have been for, for them uh, not being available anymore. Yeah. I mean, how would he feel if an emergency room went down? Exactly. Yeah. 100 people died because of him, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, and we can we don't really know. And bear in mind that, yeah. Bear in mind that, that Chef entered into this uh, agreement to, to sell the software or sell the licenses before the Trump presidency, before these policies were in, in place. It's, I don't know. I, I, I see his point. He has the right to, to make a, a stand. I I wouldn't have done the same thing, personally. Yeah, you know, I struggle with this one because I, I appreciate that he had the moral compass and integrity to do something. I don't think he thought about the bigger ramifications of doing that something. And I think we are in a weird political place where, you know, if we only sell software to the politicians that we like, you know, it makes it unstable for them to buy open source. And that's damaging to the open source community as a whole. And that, I think, results in you know, more companies like Palantir getting more business to do things that we don't see and are opaque to us as, in the community. And, and I think I said it on this podcast before, I'd rather know that they're using Amazon Transcribe, and Amazon Transcribe isn't always the best. <laughs> but I know what that technology is because I can use it myself, and I know how, how threatening or not threatening it is um, versus something like Palantir, which I just don't really know anything about, and I, it kind of concerns me a little bit. Um, so yeah, so you know, there's some interesting things here that Barry said in his letter, uh, and the one that really rubbed the community, uh, you know, in the wrong way was, "I've made a principled decision with the support of the chef executive team to work with institutions of our government, regardless of whether or not we personally agree with their various policies. I want to be clear that this decision is not about the contract value; it is about maintaining a consistent and fair business approach in these volatile times, uh, which you know people." We're not happy about <laughs> to sum it up really well, uh, and so that was all back on the the nineteenth of September, uh, you know, Thursday, Friday of that week. Uh, there was an update from their CTO Corey Scoble, uh, Scoby, uh, who basically you know wrote a blog post with the full postmortem of it, kind of timeline of what happened, how they restored service. He did talk about in his article um, that you know they mistakenly replaced uh, Seth's name from the repo that was an accident in their in their hurry to just get it fixed mm. for their customers which is a easy escape you know easy easy excuse to make um, i don't know if that was actually the case but you know the, there's definitely someone you know did the wrong thing there but they did fix it um, they did revert that change um, and then he followed up with a personal uh, blog post that he wrote about how his personal feelings about ice and and overall and he quotes uh, saying i am proud to be part of a community that boldly states you must do the right thing yet that statement simultaneously hurts me why it hurts because it tells me that i gave you reason to believe otherwise i gave you reason to think that chef wasn't doing the right thing and that's something i have to own it tells me that i failed to do an effective communicator about my feelings on this matter um, so that was, it was interesting a little bit of humanity in this scenario and then finally on monday uh, their CEO, Chef, uh, basically caved to the pressure from the community, uh, wrote a new blog post saying that they you know, basically started working with ICE in 2014 and 2015, like I mentioned earlier, um, admits that it was under different circumstances, and after deep introspection and dialogue within Chef, they decided to not renew their current contract with ICE and CBP uh, when they expire next year, and they will, sh they will fulfill the obligations of the current contract. And then Chef also committed to donating an amount equivalent to their 2019 revenues from the two entities uh, to charities that help vulnerable people impacted by the policy of family separation and detention. And he apologized for, of course, the painful events over the past week. Which, If this was the first blog post he had written about it, I think we wouldn't be talking about this. <laughs> uh, but this is a, a really bad way to handle an emergency crisis in your in your community. And I think he they eroded a lot of trust in the Chef space. And uh, I wouldn't be entirely shocked to see a, a fork or you know a, a bigger movement to Ansible or Saltstack or something else uh, in response to this. Mm. I mean, the world is a very divided place right now, and 
what's moral or what's right is very subjective, and I don't think anybody thinks that separating children from their families is is uh, is right by any means. But but when there's forty nine percent of people with one opinion and and fifty one percent with another opinion, it's it's very hard to to please everybody. Impossible. And then just take it to the take it to the next level. You know, forget open source. Just think about if all vendors did this. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's what that goes back to my comment about. You know, I don't know how I feel about a world where we only sell software to the government when it's the you know the political party that we agree with. Yeah. That's a that's a bad place to be in, and it, it just makes open source unviable for government, and that's that's a problem. And then we end up paying for that as taxpayers and paying a lot more money for licensing uh, because they're paying for these really bloated enterprise products that don't work. Uh, look at Obamacare and how much money they wasted getting that website up uh, to have it replaced mostly with open source software that works. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so in another interesting article uh, that I stumbled across on in the interwebs this week was uh, from Wall Street Journal, and I apologize, this is behind a paywall uh, for most of you, unless you're subscribing to the Wall Street Journal. Um, I actually subscribed just to read this article, and then I unsubscribed, so there you go. Uh, <laughs> but there's a, a grassroots campaign to take down Amazon, apparently, is funded by Amazon's biggest rivals. Uh, so 18 months ago, a new nonprofit group called Free and Fair Markets Initiative launched a national campaign criticizing the business practices of, of Amazon.com. Uh, they accuse Amazon of stifling competition and innovation, inhibiting consumer choice, gorging on government subsidies, and endangering its warehouse workers and exposing consumer data to privacy breaches. Uh, they claim to have grassroots support for average citizens across the U.S., citing a labor union, a Boston management professor, and a California businessman. Uh, but of course, what they didn't tell you was that they were receiving backing from Amazon.com rivals, including Simon Property Group, which owns uh, most of the malls across the country, uh, Walmart, and software giant Oracle. Uh, the grassroots support that they also claimed to have was a, apparently a labor union that said they were, did not have permission to use their name, uh, and they do not support this initiative. Uh, the Boston professor says the group, uh, with his permission, ghost wrote an op-ed for him about Amazon that he didn't know would name him as a, as a member. And the California businessman apparently was dead uh, for months before his name was removed. Oh, from my God. <laughs> <laughs> That's so great. Free and Fair Markets currently is run by a strategic communications firm called Marathon Strategies um, that works for large corporations, including many, many Amazon rivals. And apparently they initially asked companies for $250,000 fee uh, per company to fund this anti-Amazon group. Uh, so that's just, uh, that's just dirty politics right there. <laughs> that's all I have to say about that. I don't know. I think it's super cute when three monopolies team up together to uh, claim that they're in the name of free trade and go attack the other monopoly. Uh, that's, it's cute. Yeah, it's cute. I mean, Amazon, of course, you know, you know, is not commenting on the story, but you know, internally they must just be like, "Oh my God, these people are so stupid." <laughs> yeah. Or you could spend your time and money trying to make a better experience for your customers. And yeah, hey, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I I don't really enjoy malls because they're they're not interesting to go to anymore. But yeah. they were back in the '90s, just not. Now. You know what? They would make really they would make really good Amazon distribution hubs, though. So maybe they, they would. should stop screaming and yelling and. They also they also used to make really good um, you know managed data centers for Rackspace too. Oh yeah, they bought nice. they bought they bought old malls down in uh, San Antonio. Yes. There you go. Yeah. yeah. Well, weren't the free and fair markets people behind the the whole New York uh, Amazon second headquarters failure? I think it happened right about the time we started the podcast last year, and uh, they they were the grassroots movement that, that kind of yeah they were they were definitely involved in some of yeah. the the you know noise around Amazon's headquarters too and all of that. But you know there was there's a whole bunch of other reasons why that failed for them. Uh, there's actually a couple of really good articles in Wired about it, but that um, I didn't link to or we haven't talked on the show. But uh, that really talk about the whole scenario, how it went down, and, and why Amazon pulled the plug ultimately. 
Um, and, you know, many people in New York are saying they just couldn't hang with New Yorkers who are just vocal people. So there you go. Yeah, I wonder if they were paid by free and fair markets too. I mean, I love that name though, free and fair markets. The yes. hypocrisy is is not brought lost. to you by Oracle, Amazon, or Walmart, and uh, Simon Group. Yeah, Simon Group is the best. <laughs> <laughs> we want to get in on this. I can just hear that guy. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, that was uh, general news. Let's move on to uh, AWS uh, this week, who had some cool announcements. Uh, first of all, they uh, they had previously promised uh, some new G4 instances. Of course, the G4s are the NVIDIA T4 Tensor Core GPUs. Uh, they are labeled as the G4DN dot class, uh, and they go from dot X large to dot 16 X large. Uh, on the smallest configuration of this, you get one T4 Tensor GPU. Uh, and with 16 gigs of RAM and four vCPUs. Uh, on the larger side of it, you can get one that has four core GPUs and 48 cores, uh, vCPUs, and 192 gigs of RAM. Uh, so pretty big boxes. They do offer also offer you a metal version of this, which will come with eight uh, Tensor Core GPUs and 96 virtual CPUs and 384 gigs of RAM. So these are big boxes to do a lot of big data type opportunities using machine learning and GPUs. So And they're, they're really accessible price-wise as well, starting at 50 cents an hour. And this is the kind of thing you're going to spin up and then spin down again, either on a spot market or just just uh, on demand. But it's uh, 50 cents an hour is amazing. Value. Yeah, yeah, very good value for the uh, the small one. You think you think when Nvidia started and they were just making cool graphic cards for people to play video games, had any idea that this is where their company was going? Oh, I, I absolutely not. No idea. Yeah, <laughs> it's so cool. <laughs> yeah, like what? Do you want to use a graphics cards to do what? <laughs> the fact that they're still referred to as graphics cards yeah. is, is, is hilarious, right? Totally. <laughs> Yeah, it is interesting they haven't really moved away from the GPU nomenclature because, uh, yeah, it's so much more than graphics now. I was impressed that the uh, the larger one, the 8x large, the 16x large, you can get up to 50 gigs of uh, gigabits per second of uh, network bandwidth. That's that's huge, uh, and seven gigabits to the EBS. That's 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 some serious bandwidth through these boxes. Yep. Just think how much money you could spend at that rate. I can download the entire internet, Jonathan, in hours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Staff functions have gotten a very long desired feature. They now support dynamic parallelism. Uh, of course, AWS Staff Functions is a fully managed service that makes coordinating tasks easier by letting you design and run workflows that are made of steps. Each step, of course, receiving input and output from the previous step. And now they support with this dynamic parallelism. Uh, they use the Amazon state language to use a mapping function uh, for dynamic parallelism. You could use, apparently you could used to do static, uh, but the static was you know if you needed 10 of them, you always had to have 10 of them, even if you didn't need 10. Uh, the new dynamic capability will dynamically scale it based on your need, and they can do fan out and scatter gather methods uh, fan out for you. So uh, pretty, yeah. Well, the other uh, interesting cool feature that Amazon released is the new Amazon S3 same region replication. Uh, this now allows you to, so it supports automatic and asynchronous replication of newly uploaded S3 objects to a destination bucket in the exact same region you put it into. So uh, this is a very well needed feature for those of you who have you know, potentially a need to store data in a different account uh, for different applications, maybe in a data lake or some other thing, or you want to replicate the data as it gets written to one bucket, uh, into a data lake bucket, for example. Uh, there was work Workarounds for this in the past where you could do things like, I'm going to replicate my data from US West 2 to US West 1 and then back, uh, which is really awful because now you're, now you're triple paying for this basic functionality. So this is really nice that this is now available to you. Uh, this does work across accounts as well as in the same region uh, and uh, is just a nice feature in general. So do you think they actually copy the object or do you think they, they just 
reference the object which already exists. I feel like they actually copy it because if they if they were crossing the account boundary and just doing a reference, I feel like that would be some type of violation of um, some type of security control they have. Yeah, maybe. And I, I think you know if if, they, if there's a plus, they can't charge you twice if they only give you pointers to it. Well, well, they can. They, you could, yeah, they, <laughs> they, they absolutely can. can. They absolutely can. Sure. I guarantee you, there's tons of friggin' dedupe technologies going on in the back end there that we're not seeing. I wonder if they allow you to copy between different tiers. Like, can I go to infrequent access in a different account, or can I go directly to Glacier in a different account? I assume I could with lifecycle policies of some sort. But uh, yeah, I, I still think it's a great feature because I think. Um, I know we have some use cases where this might come in handy for things like, you know, hey, we want to keep this data out of this account in case of someone hijacking our account and encrypting all of our data and ransoming us. Right. <laughs> um, so there, so there are great, some use yeah, cases. That's a really good use case. Yeah, where, you know, this data, if I could write it out to another account where I can't edit it, um, then there's some opportunities there as well as for immutable and for auditing purposes. There's, there's quite a few uh, really interesting use cases this enables for you. Moving on to uh, announce what I missed. Uh, so apologies for this. Apparently they announced this on September 12th, but uh, my pre-work of the show failed me. Uh, they have announced a new vCPU-based on-demand instance limit, uh, and they're available for EC2. Uh, this apparently was announced, on, like I mentioned, on the 12th, but they just added it uh, recently here into the console. So as you're in the EC2 system, you can immediately see the new vCPU-based uh, service limits. Uh, you can make the toggle between, you know, from the old version to the new version. Uh, so basically, for those of you, since we didn't cover this on the 12th, uh, they are eliminating the long-held, uh, you know, C5 uh, instance limits, you know, based on an instance class. So there used to be an A limit, a C limit, a D limit, and then that was also based on size. So you can only run maybe 20 um, of each instance type in your account before you'd hit a service limit, um, which was super annoying for those trying to really get started with Terraform or some other things. You're trying to spin up a lot of instances in a new account. And so your very first support case, of course, would always be to Amazon to increase your service limit for whatever instance type you wanted, uh, which was annoying. And so they have now changed that to a vCPU-based service limit. So instead of having uh, you know, a C5 X-large service limit, it's now 100 CPU. You know, the base default is 256 vCPUs in an account, and you can use that across... You know, you could launch 32 M5 2X larges, or you could launch 15 C5 4X larges, um, or any combination of those. Uh, it's all based on that CPU uh, limit, and that can be increased uh, at any time through the normal increase limit process. Uh, they also now make that available if you are using the old method. Uh, there's a one-time transition process where you click the button, and they'll automatically calculate uh, the number you need right now, plus a little extra, and that way you don't have to do anything special for your first uh, conversion to this. This is an opt-in until October 24th, and then this will be become uh, automatically applied to all AWS accounts, so definitely something to take a look at uh, to make sure you're not surprised uh, if you have a very uh, spiky workload. Yeah, I mean, who wouldn't want to turn this on? It's so, so much easier than what we have right now, and especially having to you know, click through the console to request um, the changes to all the different tiers, but I'm kind of hoping that this this is the, the first step in a path to kind of normalize the cost of instances based on exactly the resources you get. Yeah, I would hope it's kind of the first step towards that that world. That'd be great. Um, they, I do should, should mention here they do have actually um, a couple of vCPU limit groups. So the one there's a, uh, the basic one is for standard instances. So A, C, D, M's, R's, and T's, uh, and a couple others as well. Those are all in that standard one. And then there's a, a different group for the more expensive units, like the FVGA boxes, the graphic intensive and GPU specialized memory optimized X instances, etc. Those are a different uh, vCPU group. So don't if you're concerned about 
hey, you know, I, I add 300 uh, vCPUs and then my account gets hacked and, and they launch, you know, 300 vCPUs of X instances, uh, that's not really possible. They're two different groups unless, you increase, the, unless you increase that one. Yeah, I mean, if, if I was a hacker, the first thing I'd do is just uh, submit a support ticket to ask for the limits to be increased. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know. I, I don't really, when, it, when it's rubber stamp, I don't really get what the benefit is. But anyway, I guess you get the emails. You might get the emails to your root account and you'll see it happening. Yeah, maybe. I mean, some of them um, are actually complicated limits in the back end when you find out, you know, what they actually have to do and, and the things that, you know, sometimes it takes code pushes to lift limits. But yeah, these, these instance limits were never that way. Google has announced the new virtual display devices uh, for Compute Engine. Uh, basically, what they are, these are virtual uh, GPUs, uh, or not, but not high-powered ones that you can attach to your servers. Uh, they emulate video graphics arrays or VGA capabilities uh, without having to use those expensive Tensor GPUs because uh, they want to sell those to you for more money elsewhere. Many system management tools, uh, remote desktop software, and graphical applications, of course, require you to connect to a display device on a remote server, and so you need these uh, capabilities for the server. Uh, this works out of the box with Windows and uh, does support Linux VMs as well. Uh, and they've been working with several de uh, partners, including Itopa, uh, Nutanix, and TerraDC, to enable several different remote desktop solutions uh, on their technology. So, super nice improvement. I assume this is a first step into really being able to offer a workspaces-type solution on Google, uh, which they don't really have right now. I had to laugh at this thing, because Linux has had X Windows and the X Windows protocol for such a long time, and you could have massive, massive servers in the cloud, and anyone could have a desktop. With, with graphics, uh, and the, the server didn't need its own graphics emulator. It's, it's obviously Windows, it's more, much more important for Windows than it is for Linux. But in the X Windows world, you know, the, the server is actually the client, which is providing the resources, the graphics resources, to the machine running in the cloud, I guess. So it's just a weird way to think about it. It took me a little while actually reading this article to think that through, because I, I wasn't quite understanding it at first, then I was like, oh, okay, I get it. Now thinking about X Windows and how that worked. They actually, one of the examples they used was from... Uh, you know, struct inspect, uh, which finally does 3D modeling, and so they are able to use this technology for remote workstations uh, using Terra DC cloud access software to basically be able to do 3D modeling in this technology. So, you know, it's not nothing to sneeze at. It's not as good as a Tensor's GPU, but it definitely can do quite a bit of stuff. Container native load balancing uh, is now available uh, generally for everybody on GKE. Uh, so last year, of course, they announced the container native load balancer feature. Uh, that allows you to create services using network endpoint groups uh, so that requests to your service get load balanced directly to the containers serving the request. So this is a very common Kubernetes pattern where you have a set of Kubernetes pods or services running that you then have like an Nginx type uh, forward proxy in the system basically handling all the reverse proxying to the containers. Uh, now if there's new container native load balancing, you don't have to have that uh, Nginx proxy in place. And so this is all natively integrated uh, and very simple to deploy. Uh, and much more uh, performant, scalable, and a better user experience overall. I can't believe that you always talk about the features you can't believe um, weren't there on day one. This is one that is hilarious watching us spin up Nginx clusters on the cluster. Um, it just, <laughs> just seems to do proxying. So, yeah. You see very quickly how you got to service mesh because you have all these Kubernetes uh, servers that are running, all running their own Nginx proxy, servicing traffic to the nodes that are running on the different boxes, which you need, of course, for high availability. And then you had to, you had to route all the traffic through that, and you're like, well, now I have to have a load balancer that talks to all these pods, or I can put a service mesh in the middle of this, and I can make it all even more abstracted away. So it's uh, it's really interesting how that all kind of came to be. I was trying to think of whether the performance would be, would be better in the new model than the old model. I guess it comes down to the fact that 
with an Nginx proxy in the middle, you have you have two lots of SSL session yep, being established. Yep, exactly. So I mean, it's not a huge performance boost, but for some applications, it might really matter. So just yeah, I guess it's for, like for the first connection from a client, it will it should be noticeable. I read some statistics a while ago about how long mobile users will wait for a page to load before they click off and do something else, and then we're talking two seconds. <laughs> People are so impatient. Yeah, I just also think about manageability, another layer that you don't have to manage and you don't have to worry about keeping up to date and can't get hacked. Man, my, my gigabit internet at my house makes me so spoiled when I'm out traveling at hotels with crappy internet. And you're like, why is this taking so long? Oh, yeah. The, there's probably only like a basic cable modem for the hmm. entire hotel yeah. <laughs> that I paid $20 for because that's how hotels work. Some people pick the, the location based on good schools, good commute times. Me and Justin pick location based on gigabit internet. <laughs> <laughs> yes, for sure. Clearly, I didn't I, do that. You, you did not. That's very <laughs> true with your, uh, your ghetto Wi-Fi at your house. <laughs> Uh, we yeah you know I, I wish Redfin or Zillow had that as a as a filtering model like hey can I only look at houses that have gigabit internet capability <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that would really make finding my next house much easier all right moving on to uh, Azure man here we are again with with premium tiers of files the new uh, Azure file premium tier gets zone redundant storage is now generally available. Uh, this is available for uh, pretty much everybody who uses normal Azure but if you're using a file based account. Uh, which is some type of special storage-based Azure account. Uh, you can only use this in Western Europe. So uh, sorry if you're not in Western Europe, you can't use this feature. But this is now generally available. Of course, Azure ZRS uh, premium storage should be considered for managed file services where performance and regional availability are critical for the business. And just more confusion in the world of disks on Azure. Why can't you just give a good service to everybody? I don't know. Or sell a good service to everybody. It's not like it's, you know, not that they're not charging for the non-premium tier. Well, you would think it's actually more expensive in the long run to support all these different tiers of storage, right? Versus, you know, I just have, I just have magnetic, I just have, I have SSD, and I have provisioned IOPS on AWS, and it's like, well, it's very simple. There's those three types. We can combine them in any level of RAID that we want to in the back end, and present it to the customer, which is us, uh, in a performing way, and we that's how we handle it. Versus, you know, make the customer make all these really complicated decisions on which storage tier they need in premium blobs and premium file and ultra premium file it's just it's so much complexity to push to the end user i just don't understand why they're doing this i don't know i'm used to premium services and uh i don't know if i could use file systems that were created just for the common man so you must be using all pyops on all your ebs <laughs> just because i can <laughs> you must you're definitely getting paid way more than we are because that is those are expensive pyops yeah just reading through the post just reminded me why i always hated the azure console <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, I, you know, I, I sort of have this rule, like when people call me about, you know, opportunities, which I'm not really interested in at the moment, but, uh, you know, they say like, oh, yeah, we're doing a cloud transformation on Azure. And I'm like, yeah, thanks. I don't want to talk to you anymore because <laughs> I just don't want to deal. I just don't want to deal with it. <laughs> it's just so much. Anyways, all right, moving on to the next one. Introducing the cost-effective increment snapshots of Azure managed disks uh, are now in preview. Uh, so apparently uh, this is all about making incremental snapshots more cost-effective for you. Uh, apparently they as you always know, would snapshot the entire uh, EBS volume or managed disk volume that you attached, apparently even if it wasn't full. And so you paid for that entire thing on every snapshot. Now with the new incremental snapshots, you're only paying for the Delta charges. So, you know, thanks for that, I guess. Welcome to 2012. <laughs> Indeed. Ding, ding, ding. This is great because now all that, you know, all that extra money you spent on premium file services, you can, uh, you can get it back here. All right, well, that's it for new news. Let's move on to the lightning round, Peter. All right, we're going to blow through this one. 
Introducing new Amazon EC2 Windows Server AMIs for DISA STIG compliance. I don't know what the, the STIG racer has to do with any of this. but Oh, nice. Ding, ding. Yeah, it's one of my favorite people of all time, even though it's been multiple people. <laughs> it's the unknown person. Mm-hmm. I guess it drives faster than the regular Windows Server AMIs. Oh, nice. Nice. We got competition today. Two, two, they both came out punching. I love it. Amazon EKS announces beta release of Amazon EFS CSI driver. Let me let me find my sunglasses real quick to rip them off. Yeah. <laughs> I can't beat that. Oh. Amazon API Gateway simplifies invoking private APIs. There is nothing simple about the API Gateway. <laughs> it's true. There's really nothing other than invoking private APIs either. So I like that there's a contest that I would want to invoke public APIs for my gateway, which is not the case. Amazon Workspaces introduces Workspaces Restore to the last known healthy state. You know, it never worked on my Windows boxes when they rebooted and said, you know, I can't boot. Try the last known good state. It never worked F9. then. Why would it work on Amazon? F9. Press F9. F9. Amazon Aurora serverless Postgres now supports data API. I like it, actually. We should have talked about this more in the show. I, I think it's... Uh, not, not, I have nothing bad to say about this. But it's, it's, it's obviously so that they're, they're standardizing the way you get to data so that they can tweak stuff on the back end without you realizing. It's pretty cool. Oh, exactly. Oh, boy. <laughs> Jonathan, I like it. Good job. It is, it is cool, but uh, yeah, I didn't... I will tell you all that I procrastinated very badly on the show notes this week because I had other things to do for vacation and uh, I was behind, so I didn't really have a chance to read this one to move it up. Uh, I moved a bunch of stuff down because I got lazy, but I didn't move this up, so sorry. It solves the problem of having 3,000 Lambda instances all trying to do something at the, at the same time. You know, you, you don't, you're not going to have a Postgres of answering 3,000 concurrent connections. To well, it, it, it really just... solves the big problem, which is, you know, uh, resource pooling or connection pooling on SQL exactly. servers. Exactly. Because yep. that, that's just, it's death in a Lambda world, so... It makes a lot of sense. AWS Lambda now supports custom batch window for Kinesis and DynamoDB event sources. Yeah. Ooh, that's a lot of words. It's, that's pretty cool. I mean, I don't, I don't really know, you know, in a serverless world, why it would matter how often you, unless there's some big overhead to start up I assume it's that they, that they, this is for people who have batch workload, but they only want the batch workload to happen at night. But they want no. it to be. They want it to be basically, you know, only scalable to the batch they have. And so you basically say, I can only allow this batch lambda function to run between the hours of ten o'clock at night and five a.m. Uh, because nope. I don't want it to impact my production day. That's no, 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 totally, totally not what it is. It's all about if 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 there's a stream of data coming in, Amazon will batch the stream into chunks and then pass it as chunks to Lambda instead of evoking Lambda once per event. Um. They'll invoke Lambda with you know, like a hundred events in a payload. Oh, that's a that's a that's a game. That's a winner. I think we have a winner. That's actually interesting because it, it actually solves uh, data aggregation problems with doing metrics, custom metrics into um, AWS. So you instead of doing uh, basically every metric every second or every millisecond, I can now aggregate them up and batch them in and still get that de- level of detail processed through Lambda. So that's what they probably built that for then. That makes sense. I, I kind of wonder if it was related to, if it was like a prerequisite for getting the, the MapReduce stuff done for uh, step functions. Okay. Step one, cut a hole in the box. Or it, or it's or it's the beginning of a of a feature set that's going to be needed for something awesome at reInvent. That's what I'm hoping for. Maybe uh, moving on. AWS joins the .NET Foundation. You know, Pepper Ridge Farm remembers when the .NET Foundation was nothing, and no one knew what .NET was. And I miss those days because I don't like what .NET is now. I'm sure Microsoft would love having Amazon being in the .NET Foundation. 
this is really a me too for AWS because Google already jumped in on this, and Oracle jumped in on this, and you know AWS is the last one standing. So uh, this is really this is really a me too uh, or us too uh, moment for them. I just want to know why they didn't join the Silverlight Foundation. Moving oh, on. Well. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> ding. Totally showing your age, mentioning, mentioning stuff like that. <laughs> that was that was a ding just on that callback. I haven't heard thought of that in a long time. At Open World, Oracle struggles to move the cloud needle its way. Hey, I'm not the only one who thought that, I guess. <laughs> You're not. That is for sure. No, it's so funny watching these, the, the, the blog posts about, about Oracle World and how they change from day to day, and people are spinning it just a little bit more and a little bit more, and all of a sudden, Oracle are fantastic, and uh, we should all go all in on them. Really? I, day two and day three keynote was, oh, it was brutal. Like, I mean, day one was, was the Trump show of, of Oracle, and then day two and three were all business services around Oracle cloud apps and Oracle financials and, you know, Oracle business services and a bunch of stuff there. And it was just, and then Wednesday was NetSuite day, which NetSuite's actually awesome. I like NetSuite, but, um, you know, they are owned by the Oracle. So, you know, what are you going to do? But that's not really a, a compelling keynote for most people unless you're using NetSuite. Yeah, Amazon Redshift announces automatic workload management and query priorities. Why, why can't they just call this auto-scaling for Redshift? Why are we using all these new words and verbs? Can we just simplify this, please? And Amazon Athena adds support for inserting data into a table using the results of a select query or using a provided set of values. So when I read this the first time, I was thinking it was saying that my Athena query of S3, I could then insert data back into S3. And I was like, why would I do that? And then as I read it more now, I'm realizing that it's inserting data from the Athena query directly into a SQL table, which is actually kind of nice, I guess, for summarizing for certain reasons. So it's kind of a nice uh, poor man's EMR job into a data warehouse. I guess you could like use it as temporary tables. Yeah, yeah. It's maybe the start of uh, Amazon competing with Snowflake. Ooh, ooh. And that wraps it up. I got to give it to uh, Jonathan for the highly uh, eye-opening uses for custom batch. He schooled me on that <laughs> one because I didn't read the article. Apparently, I actually think Peter should get it for the Silverlight. And uh, what was the other thing? He said? What was the other thing he said? <laughs> there, was, there was another one. I'd, I'd, I'd concede the point. I'm out. Speaking of Silverlight, I mean, notice if you're Chrome user, they started having this bar at the top of every single page, which is incredibly annoying right now. Which is like Adobe Flash is being discontinued in 2020. Do you want to turn it off now? I'm like, why? Why would I turn it off now if it's going to be supported yeah. for another for another 18 months? Warning! Warning! <laughs> it's about to go off. Would you rather turn it off sooner? <laughs> you must you must, re- you must run the uh, release channel of Chrome because I've been having that for like nine months now and I run the uh, the beta channel and it's been annoying me for much longer than a year. <laughs> so I wait for it to pretty much tell me it's, it's going to have to turn itself off otherwise it's going to self-destruct. That's your, that's your Google Chrome upgrade strategy? That's yeah. great. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can always go with the, uh, the Safari model and switch to that and then it only gets updated once a year when they update the OS. Well, it's been a great time here once again here at the CloudPod. Uh, we will be on... Oh, I will be gone. I don't know about these guys. Uh, they, they might have something special planned for you uh, while I'm gone. Uh, for a show, but I will not be here next week. So uh, if you hear them, uh, then they follow through on recording a podcast that they promised me they would do. Uh, and if not, then uh, they failed me, and I will chastise them appropriately when I get back from my vacation in a few weeks. So thanks, guys. Have a good uh, good couple of weeks while I'm out, and I'll see you on the other side. All right. Good night. And that is The Week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel, go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions.